Welcome to Conversamos. My name is Francisco Escobar, and I'm the host and content creator of this show. Today, we're discussing about mental health with a focus on Latino males. All here on Conversamos. Yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, taking it back for the platform that I formed. Who's just helping me transform? I run the Before we begin our conversation, we'd like to give a business spotlight to Cloud's Cannabis Company, a US-based company that sells a wide variety of cannabis products that you can smoke, drink, and eat. Check them out at Cloud's Cannabis CO. That is Cloud's Cannabis CO on Instagram or the website at www.cloudscannabiscompany.com. Now the first question to the panelists, what events have led you to an interest, career, or advocacy towards mental health? Um, what events have led you, and you again, you can have, let's say your response again, but what events have led you to have an interest, career, or advocacy for mental health? Um... So pretty much what brought me here to where I'm at today, I would have to say was my uh, sophomore year uh, school counselor. Um, as, a, as a child, I had a lot of anxiety and I didn't know what that was um, until I was 15, 16 years old. Um, and so the reason why I went to go see him was because like a lot of my friends, he was a brand new counselor at the school. And so a lot of my friends were saying like, hey, if you go to his office, you can get out of class. Um, and that literally was my purpose was just to get out of class. And I remember going to his office and, um, you know, uh, we, we talked, we talked for like an hour and it just seemed so natural, so free flowing. Um, and he didn't specifically teach me what anxiety was that particular time, but for some reason it kind of started to make a little bit of sense. And I knew once I walked out of his office that day, like I literally told myself, I want to do that when I grow up. Um, so it was because of that one session that I had that brought me to where I'm at now. The, the experience of being the liaison at Syracuse University um, and working with that uh, age population, that demographic, um, those um, young adolescents, those young adults uh, between the ages of 18 and, and 22, um, and not only hearing about their experiences, but also hearing about their journey, um, their journey of, um, of support, um, of transition, of um, talking through that trauma, um, finding the confidence to do that um, really allowed and, and pushed me to dive in deeper in uh, becoming more knowledgeable so that I can continue to support them through that. Um, I think the, the great part of that manifestation is that as I was going through that process of becoming educated myself, um, the journey really became inward. And that's when I started focusing a little bit more on my health, um, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually. That's when I figured that I, as a servant and as a supporter uh, of these young adults, needed to also go through the experience of, of uh, being aware of what mental health was, um, being aware of what that looks like um, and how to be responsive um, to those feelings, those sentiments that you may have um, through the journey that we call life, honestly, um, especially those four years in college um, where so much being thrown at you, um, so much that you have to endeavor in on your own, possibly for the first time. Um, I thought it was just a, a real good mix to that that really drove me to, to look in, into that space. Thank you, thank you for my suggestion. I also appreciate how you're bringing your training into your personal self. I really appreciate that a lot. And so, George? Yeah, I think um, for me, I think for me, um, it, starts, it starts with a fraternal experience uh, for me. Um, I, uh, like I, like I mentioned before, I had been involved in the streets for a little while during middle school to high school. And... Um, when I joined a fraternity, part of it was like needing to have another family, right? There were, there were gaps and uh, competency gaps and, and personal gaps in my family, my personal family. So I was always looking for something that would actually fill that void. When I went to college, uh, a lot of that was aroused. There was a lot of things that I had to deal with trauma. I was going through a divorce. I already had two children. Um, so I was a little bit older than the average student there. But I had gone through periods of my life where I had a lot of loss, 
you know, I have a lot of friends that I lost to gun violence and to prison. Um, and, and that always kind of stayed with me, right? And I always had survivor's guilt of having been able to be fortunate enough to get out and get to college and whatnot. But more recently, I had a conversation with Francisco um, and, and interested in hosting events like this because there are not many spaces that men like us, Latino men, men of color, could actually go and cry. Like if you had some very overwhelming sadness right now, who would you allow to see you cry? And, and that was very interesting to me. Um, there was an event that Jason Rosario from the Lives of Men hosted um, that I went to. And it was the first event that I attended of his. There are a lot of men, I'm talking about 250 guys in a room talking about all kinds of things, right? But he did an exercise that was very interesting to me. The exercise was he wanted me to stare at another person, perfect stranger, somebody I didn't know at all. And I had to stare in his eyes for two minutes straight without looking away. And I came to a very important realization that day. I have never, ever, ever looked in the eyes of a man that I wasn't ready to hurt. Mm. So never had a moment where I looked at my dad deeply in his eyes or my uncles or my cousins. Anytime that I engaged somebody in eye to eye contact, it was a place from either defense or offense where uh, there was going to be violence involved. And it was the first time in the world in my life that I actually looked at somebody in the, in the, in the eyes and not wanted to hurt them. Had a great experience with that, with that particular workshop. There was a second workshop that was hosted once um, when, uh, when Kobe passed away. Uh, and the same thing, bunch of men in the same room trying to make sense of it. Um, not so much because Kobe was personal to anybody, but because he was part of the culture and because we just generally have an issue with showing emotions and discussing these things in public. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it there, but that, that's pretty much uh, it. It's, so it's multi, multi, multiple points in my life where I've had to deal with certain traumas. And uh, I feel pretty mentally healthy today because I do go to therapy. And uh, during uh, the pandemic, I've also indulged in, in uh, online therapy. Um, but it's been very good for me because you can see my personal growth because I'm such a public figure. Uh, I'm always online and I'm always sharing my different parts of my journey. So you could see a progression from, you know, even 20 years ago, like to now uh, as to who I am. So. Thank you, George. And Christina? Ever since... My so ever since I had surgery back when I was 13, uh, which was from a diagnosis regarding a brain tumor, um, kind of be, I was experiencing a lot of depression, anxiety. Of course, at the time, um, it was considered to be bipolar disorder, which I am still diagnosed with now. So I do see a therapist uh, to follow up on um, that, and it's um, difficult to exp explain because. For Latino parents, especially my parents who are highly religious, um, when you talk about depression or anxiety, or you talk about um, your mental illness, you, you assume that the best cure would be going to church. And so that concept of going to church was very pressured onto me, uh, which only made it worse. Um, and that is where the concept of uh, like machismo and authoritarianism and authoritarian parenthood can uh it plays a huge part in um latino youth and well any youth in general so going through that process and go getting help myself um kind of helped kind of guided me into okay i want to do mental health and when i went to school kind of indulged more into the concept of understanding how mental health is more of a biopsychosocial spiritual aspect so what we can control what well, basically what we're made of, our biology, our um, our environment, our home, family dynamics, the expanding to where we live, our zip code, our communities, um, and this country, um, kind of was exploring. And then when I went into grad school, um, I started to. Um, explain express like interest in why how things work so mental health for a lot of people assume that it's just one-on-one -on -one or group therapy and stuff like that um i started to realize it's beyond that and it's what 
what your community is made of, and then to the bigger picture, the macro sense of policy making, uh, addressing concerns of the general public. And so I basically went from I want to do therapy to I speak right now to councilmen and councilwomen in my city, or I talk to a lot of um, elected officials on addressing concerns that impact the very lives of our own youth and adults and families in our streets. So basically expanding on, I pretty much am jumping on all over, at, like as many may see on social media, I'm all over the place. <laughs> I'm surprised I even sleep, but that I, I kind of, I, I emphasize a lot on the issues of mental health within black and brown communities because it's what's mostly neglected, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, I guess how I got into the field is my, my, my path was a little straightforward and yet not so much at the same time. Um, so I was always into psychology, and um, I went through uh, uh, an undergrad. I, I was a psychology major and stuff like that. Um, but I, uh, things started solidifying um, right as I was ending my undergrad, and I was starting like um, grad school ish. Um, so sometime around there is around the time where I joined a fraternity and kind of to George's, uh, kind of similar to George, um, they, there was a sense of, uh, family that I felt like I was missing, even though like I, I have my family, but it's, I needed something else. I, I needed some, something outside of my family, right? Like my second family or something like that. And that's kind of when I joined the fraternity. But through the fraternity, I noticed that, like, kind of to George's point, like a lot of people were almost um, shielding themselves off. And even though we, we have a shared experience, like nobody was really talking about it. Um, then once I finished um, uh, my undergrad, I did... Um, I used to work residential for about a year, year and a half, some, something like that. Um, and there, um, I used to work with kids that were in the DCFS system. So they were wards of the state, um, but they were in this like transitional home where they, they stay. I was able to come come and go as I pleased, but they weren't, they, they stayed there. Um, and through there, I noticed that um, for lack of a better term, um, I was essentially like a glorified babysitter. Um, I would uh, meet with the clients and I would be there and my job primarily was uh, stabilization uh, and mood regulation. Mm. And that, that was pretty much it. Um, but then when we had therapists on site and therapists would come and go and see their clients and you know, um, do interventions, um, uh, do treatment plans and stuff like that. And when I compared that to the work that I was doing, not saying that my work isn't, oh, I wasn't doing good work, I felt like I wasn't doing enough. Um, so I, I think uh, that I wanted to do more and that kind of motivated me to like go into grad school and uh, do this, um, like do, be more involved with the treatment. And during my time in grad school, that's when I, uh, uh, it, it was a weird sense of like me trying to find myself. So there was like this weird like introspection, self-actualization, yeah. uh, the machismo, the, the, um, the stigma, the, the uh, Latino family, like kind of um, stereotypes surrounding uh, mental health and stuff like that. And then there was these new like teachings that I was kind of like learning about like, uh, how, uh, how I can best serve my community in the, in the best way possible, implementing culture, implementing um, new treatments, interventions, and stuff like this. And it's just kind of melded together, you know? Um, well, yeah, and, Javier, because you really made up a really great point. Um, and this kind of leads to our next question. So for everyone, um, you know, what vice, what, what is like one vice have you personally or professionally experienced and how have you found it affect your work in your respective fields? Uh, I would say something that really does affect my work is the American Counseling Association's Code of Ethics. So counseling is going to be completely different within every individual community. And so 
you know, something that um, is in our code of ethics is that we're supposed to have a very, very strict, clear boundary as to what's ethical and what isn't. And so, for example, I live in Little Village, Chicago. You know, it's called Little Village for a reason. So I am going to run into my clients at the bakery, at the grocery store. Um, I remember once going to Pete's Market and I ran into three of my clients at the grocery store, you know. Um, and so the, the rule is you're not supposed to engage, you're not supposed to talk with them. And, you know, if this is like a little village and that's what it's called, I'm going to engage with them. You know, I've had uh, clients that, you know, it's Chicago weather, it's 15 degrees outside, it's snowing. They're my last session of the day. They're going to go wait for the bus. And in order for me to get home, I have to pass their house, you know? And so like they're waiting for the bus and I'm in my car. Um, the rules state that that person cannot be in my car, but I'm just like, no, like it's, it's super cold outside. Like, how am I going to, you know, what better way to develop report and say like, Hey, I'm going in the same direction that you're going, you know, let me just, you know, give you a lift, you know? Um, something that I know because I've asked like my, my colleagues, my coworkers, like, Hey, do you hug your clients? Yeah. I give them hugs. And that's one of the things too. We're not supposed to, but it's just like when you're in a space in an area where the person is being very vulnerable to you, or maybe they're having like a major breakdown and sometimes you just need to hold them. You know, apparently we're not supposed to do that, but we all do it. Yeah. So I think that's definitely a, a huge boundary. It's a limitation. And, and I would love to piggyback back off of Daniel because I think my, in my personal experience, especially with work, um, I think that, that uh, at Syracuse, I think that that was a challenge there uh, for me as well. Um, I had the experience to be there at a young age um, at the point in which some of the seniors or um, with respect to our, even our own brothers, um, right, I, I had undergraduate experience with. Um, and instead of shying away from um, right, you, you have to build, obviously, this professional persona that you have to interact. And yes, there's guidelines to follow, but I think, and in, in, to your point, I think there's a piece of vulnerability that, that is beautiful um, in, in that process sometimes um, because it allows for a um, client or the student that you're serving or even just the person that you may be assisting in that moment with the conversation to see that um, you have challenges yourself that that you can empathize and understand with, with the experience that's going on. And um, I know for me, one of the biggest challenges there when it comes to ethics and, and following right, uh, strict guidelines and rules that, that are happening um, are more specifically in moments of crisis um, when there are steps to be taken, but there's also this human element of you <laughs> that wants to take over. And I think that that's a balance in, I'm sure in a, in a lot of these, uh, the, these fields, um, where you may be a mandated reporter or certain restrictions that you may have that um, you're, you're constantly juggling on, on how to best serve this person while still maintaining a professional um, um, decorum, right, or ethic. Um, but I think that sometimes it is okay to, to, to bend the rules and, and fight that fight. You have to prove it sometimes and show it that it's, it's worth doing that. Where I work, for, like, so I'm a program coordinator. So I work in a very, very hostile neighborhood. In the, I would say one of the worst, um, in one of the worst towns, uh, in. Well, I would say, um, school-wise, thirty-seven percent graduation rate. Um, majority of the kids falling into the school to uh, prison pipeline. The town, the, the village of Hempstead uh, in Long Island is not the friendliest out of all other towns in the nation. Um, so one thing about it is the exposure I get to a lot of issues. I know I've come across situations where I've had literally um, uh, people running into my car asking, I need to get out of here because my boyfriend's about to beat me up to the situations where I've had um, individuals come in uh, to do an intake and then a couple of hundred feet from my office they get shot uh, from rival gang members. So we're in a very active gang environment. Um, I mean, it's not surprising I'm going to see MS-13 or 18th Street or Blood of Crip around, my, the, around the block. So 
when it, when I, I always have this alert sense. I have to be on top of my game. If it's someone that's going to commit uh, attempt suicide, I gotta be on the. I don't have to. I have to intervene. If it's someone experiencing domestic violence or child neglect, I have to be able to jump onto that. If I have the district attorney's office calling me about a case, a client that they're referring, I have to be able to be on on top of that. Probation, same thing. And the thing about it is that it kind of hits you as much as you don't really think about it, and um, to the point where you start to real, like you start you start to feel like you're burning out. And so when I um, noticed, uh, when I would notice those situations, I would have to take a moment to like step back. Um, and that's basically what I'm working on now is really taking that time to stick back, especially since I do have goals myself that I'm trying to com- uh, go on to doing. And I know for a fact that I'm continuing this sense of like, superhero mode it's going to not get i'm not going to be able to push myself into those situations like into that kind of mindset and goals uh that i have for myself thank you and actually um okay i want you to actually start with this answering this question and that is how can people who are who are trained professionals support our peers when dealing with mental health because that's something I kind of seen with, with um, all the responses so far in this. So, where, who are the like the non? What can the non-professionals do in this work? Um, I think probably one of the biggest things is to be a support system. Um, like, just one of the big, one of the kind of um, big things that I'm hearing just in this group is, um, well, you know, I, I wish I had a space for that, or I wish somebody would talk to me about that. Even um, I, I think it was George that was talking about like, well, um, for us to kind of like interact with another male and talk about real things as opposed to like, oh, I, I don't know, what, what sports team is playing today? Like that's, that's very superficial. But dig, dig deeper and, and be more supportive of each other. Um, I, I'm thinking of scenarios where like people come and they're like, hey, I'm not, I'm not really feeling well. You know, I'm feeling very depressed. That's where, like, non-professionals can be, like, well, what is it that you need from me? And how can I help you get those resources for you to get the help that you need? Because it's not necessarily their job to kind of pick up the pieces for them, but, again, kind of going back to the support system. That's where you can kind of build and be that support for that person. I would just say that there's really just like a lot of power in just listening to someone, you know, having someone vent what they're, what they're thinking. Um, you know, sometimes you don't, don't even have to give a response. You know, sometimes literally just being there is enough. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so now with our next question. Um, Actually, I, I have a. George, awesome. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, as a community builder, as somebody who actually creates, as, as far as uh, being a community builder, as somebody who creates spaces like Capicu for people to be able to talk about the, the reality of our people in the community and things of that nature, I believe it's my, from the website to Capicu to my podcast, every single space that I've created has been for people to share their narratives. And, and that's coming from a, you know, I'm professional. I'm not. I'm not a uh, a, pro- a professional um, mental health uh, person. But by doing that, I actually can connect people to people like you guys. So that's that's really what my. I think my purpose is is to be in the community, listening to what some of the narratives are, picking up on things that I think are problematic and a need resolution, and connecting people uh, like you with those with those folks. So that that's where I see my my space being. Uh, as, as somebody who's not trained to to deal with these things head on, uh, I would just want to add on to that question um, because it, I think it's it's really important um, for anyone, whether professional or non professional, um, when it comes to addressing mental health, is understanding your bias um, and understand being able to analyze what your biases are, especially when you're talking to somebody. Um, I, I like. For example, if you're just if you have someone coming up to you, and especially if it's just like a, it's someone that is talking about, and I I usually hear this a lot when it comes to um, victor offender kind of conversations. Oh my gosh, you're a criminal! I can't really trust you because you're a criminal. But you're not really listening to me because like you're not listening to the person explain what 
their history is. Perhaps that person has suffered from child abuse as a kid and or the, uh, domestic violence, and they are they had that they had that mentality that it's something that kind of stuck with them over that trauma that exists with them over time. So being able to understand a person's background perspective if you have a sense of bias whether it is someone who feels homophobic when you're talking to someone who is coming out to you as an lgbt member or if it is someone talking to you about um their their personal experience with something that is traumatic um understanding asking yourself questions like this makes me feel uncomfortable what about this topic is making me feel uncomfortable why am i having issues accepting this and what is something I need to work on before I could fully engage with somebody if I feel like that's appropriate for me? So I just wanted to just mention like having being reevaluating self constantly is important, especially when you don't feel sure about someone. And definitely that definitely letting that person know, like, hey, I don't feel comfortable talking about this subject yet because I don't fully understand it. Maybe you could teach me a little bit about it, or I probably want to take time to learn about it so I could help as best as I can. That kind of even like that little action, that little um, that little uh, statement can help the person feel like you know what this person understands me, or this person is trying to really learn more about me and help the way I can. I'm gonna give them that space, and I'm gonna give them that time, or I'm gonna help them learn about it. All right, so thank thank you, Justino, and now moving on to our next question: Why is understanding mental health important, especially for the Latina community? And Jason, I want you to start off with that question. Yeah, no, thank you. I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think first and foremost, um, and coming from, I guess, my life experience and, and the work experience as anecdotal evidence uh, on my end, I'm sure there's some clinical um, explanation behind why um, it's important and it's critical to understand that. Um, I think for me, the biggest challenge is that we are ever-growing beings. Um, and I think that we have to understand our transitions, our experiences, our growth. Um, how do we challenge ourselves? I think it's also important to understand what um, from our childhood is still or continues to impact us. Um, and that's one thing that I've been uh, more keen in as I continue to grow and mature um, into the adult that I am now is the relationship even with my parents um, and the uh, codependency that, that, that was there and how to break that to a certain degree, how to support them even through their trauma. I think one um, piece that I realized with our education um, when it comes to mental health is sometimes it kind of just stays um, bottled up, especially for second generation or third generation um, or, or, or for our generation that has the privilege, right, to continue to, um, to, to get access to education and to continue to grow that way is how do we bring that back to, believe, to break these cyclical challenges that our family and our peers are seeing, um, challenges that um, due to unfortunate circumstances. Um, I know, for example, my parents, um, my mom, furthest grade, she went to was seventh grade in the Dominican Republic. My dad was fifth grade. Um, so there are certain things that I can see by nature that they default to me and say, oh, you went to college or you, you, you can research that topic. You know more than me. So let me know. Um, and at first it was a little bit of a combative, a combative effort of Oh, are you, and I think that happens to us even with our friends possibly that don't right, leave the hood or our communities and we engage with them and we're coming with this knowledge and they're like, oh, look at you all grandiose now. You, you figured yourself out. And it's like, well, I just want to leave this piece so that, um, so that it benefits us all eventually. And, and one of my own uh, fraternity chapter brothers was the one that told that to me, uh, Brother Kelvin Cabrera, mm -hmm. that um, he, he was a super health freak. And I, I just didn't understand it. I've always been the chubbier guy, right? The, the, the more heavy set guy. Um, I play sports. I do all of that. But I've always been on the on the bigger end. Even now, working out and everything. I'm right. I'm at 280 through the quarantine, trying to fight through this. Um, but <laughs> um, I, my question was to him: Is why are you so adamant about this when your family, your peers, are not? Um, and his answer to me was simple: Was my grandfather dealt with diabetes. He went blind. My mom has high blood pressure. Um, and, and, and that all played a role in, in his development and his experience to say, I'm going to be the one, at least physically, through good exercise, through good health, that I, I want to break some of those barriers and those challenges that my family has been possessing for a few generations now, unfortunately. So I think that's why it's, it's very important for us to be able to, um, as different generations of Latinos, to come together and have these spaces to talk about it, because we can introduce so much knowledge into places that these conversations are not even happening. 
um, for whatever reason, they're distracted by need, um, right, by, by uh, work, by raising children, marriage, et cetera. Um, so it's very important to, to just continue pushing that knowledge in any space, any capacity that we're in. And just, just to add a bit to that, um, it manifests in different ways because my primary function at my company is to be a social media coach and a, and a business development uh, mentor, right? And one of the things I see a lot of is people, this concept of uh, imposter syndrome, for example. People not feeling like they could actually, that they're great, that they're worthy of, of having an opinion or whatever. And that, that really, it, it kind of affects how, like even the small business spaces right now, you have a lot of small businesses that fail because the people that are involved have other untreated traumas, other untreated issues that, they, that are rooted in their family life and their, in their uh, uh, adolescence maybe. That they, you know, so I find myself having to treat or, or holistically address a lot of things that I'm probably not qualified to do um, to it in its entirety. So I consistently have to engage people like yourselves to come in and actually uh, do workshops within my workshops to be able to address some of it. I just wrote a piece about imposter syndrome the other day that I'm going to be releasing in a couple of days. So, so yeah. <laughs> nice. Thank you so much, George. And now Javier. Yeah, I was going to say to Jason's point, I, I think the term you were looking for was uh, intergenerational trauma because that's kind yeah. of like everything yeah. that you're talking about. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's exactly it. Um, breaking those cycles and being able to be the change that you kind of want to see um, within your generation and future generations, I, I think that's why it's important. And, and to that point, I think it's because um, the quote-unquote like older generation, older generation does, doesn't really understand it. Fortunately for us, we're coming into a time where it's beginning to be understood but it's a slow and kind of gradual thing. And I think part of um, that is because we are involved in it. The quote unquote new generation is kind of like putting it, putting it out there and putting it into space and putting labels on it. And now people are like, wait a minute, like that, that kind of looks familiar. Like I, I've experienced that. And on top of that, does that attack on and add on everything that we've experienced as far as like your own personal traumas, your own personal experiences? Um, it, it's, it, it makes sense that um, people are like keeping quiet about it because that, that's how we were raised. But now, now we're breaking cycles and now we're, we're forming that change. Um, I would say just very simply put is that mental health is a part of wellness. And so I think in the Latino community is we're you know, 20, 30 years behind. And, you know, the, our Caucasian American counterparts where they are at for like mental health. Um, and so I think, um, you know, because of the pandemic, um, I've had an influx of brand new clients that are dealing with like a lot of anxiety because of the pandemic. And a lot of them are older and it was very like refreshing, just very nice for them to just kind of be like, well, like, wait, this, what we're doing, this is therapy. And I'm like, yeah, this is therapy, you know. And they're like, oh, yo pensé que era para la gente loca, you know. And I'm just like, no, I'm like, literally, what we're doing right now, this is counseling, like, you know, what you see on TV, movies, you know, that's it's not always the case, you know. This is for everyone. Um, but yeah, again, just simply part is that mental health is a part of wellness, and and now we're, we're we need to catch up. Thank you all, and. And to the point of it, yes, there is a lot of inter inter intergenerational trauma. There's also interge intergenerational wisdom that has been just embedded in our communities for as long as colonization and slavery has existed. So personally for me, like from meditation to sweat lodges to certain rituals I've been fortunate to be a part of with various indigenous groups, like there are, there are some solutions that have been, um, I have experienced personally and I've seen broad broadly. And so my question to you all now is, what, pers what per personal and or professional solutions would you like to just suggest to our fellow peers, starting with Christina? So like you mentioned, um, much of what's going on in, within a Latino community and mental health is based off of intergenerational inter trauma. Um, and a lot of, uh, in a sense, decolonizing the mindset when it comes to mental health because we are so 
we are prone to the Eurocentric concept of diagnosis, of abnormal behavior. A lot of his mental health history um, stems from that uh, that, tra that that trauma that exists in that um, that ties along within our community. So for me, uh, in a professional sense, I do my best to apply more of a indigenous concept to treatment. Um, there are practices that are done. Um, a lot of, well, to, to generally say, a lot of the theories, a lot of the perspectives, a lot of the treatment modalities are based off of um, a um, of Americanized and European-based theories. I mean, the founder of psychology, Sigmund Freud, is and all that has stemmed across um, Europe and into the United States. Um, and that's what's being applied across Latin America. But you don't really have a lot of Latino clinicians kind of uh, uh, implementing that kind of practice. So I do my best to try to learn more about my, like, my, my, um, my ancestry. And I kind of apply that to a lot of the, ch the children, the youth, the teenagers, the adults I work with, where they come from. Many of them are from the Caribbean. I work with a lot of Puerto Rican, Dominican, and Central American youth. And learning about where they come from, their backgrounds, what kind of practices their and like their ancestors have put into uh, into play, and kind of using that in, in in therapy and treatment, it really helps them draw a sense of acceptance of self identity. Um, that's something, and it, I mean, it expands off into understanding about who they are as a person and their behaviors and what they could do to apply more sense of um, consequential thinking if they do if they are youth that make careless decisions or um, partners who feel like they need to learn more about each other and Jason yeah um, I, I would say personally <clears throat> Um, solutions that I suggest is inventory. Um, I take inventory all the time. It's not something that I really thought about before, um, but it's something that I do now is at least every three months. Um, and that inventory is of right normal, uh, I guess, um, activities that you may partake in and to say, let's say, for example, like alcohol drinking. Um, there's times that I try to challenge myself and test myself and say, okay, 30 days without alcohol. Like, let's just do it. Let's pump the body with water for 30 days and so i think that that's important um to take inventory and, and try to um build trends um within your behavior and, and to be able to acknowledge those trends so that if you realize that you're having x amount of weekends or days that you are starting to consume alcohol and that's becoming a pattern that you can catch right early on um also i think one thing that has uh, been a big factor in my life is i've always been open to new experiences um, especially when it comes to like these weird um, things. So like in middle school and in high school, I was heavily involved in sports. As a lot of people would figure, oh, Dominican kid from the Bronx probably playing baseball. I jumped into basketball, volleyball, and then I did fencing for four years in high school. Um, so that was something that was different and exposed me to different people, different ideas, exercises, things like that. Um, also with mental focus, I, I was a part of uh, like Lego robotics in middle school and competed. Um, extensively that way. So I've always been that type of person that I've been open-minded um, about the idea. Um, I guess, interesting enough, through the pandemic, I've, I've actually jumped more into running. Um, I've been running consistently two to three miles um, every day as much as I could. Um, but that's something that I've really found just a lot of interest in um, as of late. Um, and then I, I would say professionally, I think in my role and my capacity right now, is really identifying um, resources and support uh, within the fraternity that I can um, either implement or allocate uh, to support our brothers in their mental health um, journey and, and resources for support. And then lastly, um, how to uh, create good bystanders um, when it comes to um, if we see suicide ideation. I think that's just general. Just as we learn CPR, I think we need to, we need to also learn those things um, where we can see triggers that our, our friends and peers and family members are going through. Um, I know I'm very keen now on words that people are using when I'm having conversations with them, like my sister or my mom. If, if she mentions a specific thing, I'm like, oh, okay, that, that, to my, that sounds like my mom is, you know, moving towards depression or extensive depression. So 
I, I can intervene um, a little bit earlier. So those are a little bit of some of the tools that I would say I think could be very helpful. There we go. Um, for me, I think it's uh, creating spaces. I'd like to do the same thing I've done for poetry, for Latino history, and for small businesses that are Latino owned. Um, I'd like to create a space for, for black and brown men to have these conversations with people who are equipped to help them dismantle things. We're being challenged to dismantle a lot of like historic machismo, uh, you know, the Me Too movement. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot on our plate right now. We're, we're, our, our manhood has to be redefined, right? Our, our concept of manhood. And I think that the best way to do that is to do that collectively. Um, you know, we shouldn't take the L's personally and have it be part of our story. We should kind of get into a circle and, and figure it out together. Really said. And D Daniel? Um, one thing I would recommend is mindfulness. You know, I think everything can be mindfulness from, you know, washing dishes to walking to more exercising. I think when we really can able to identify our emotions, we're able to um, take better care of ourselves. Um, I once told someone that, you know, mindfulness is not about feeling better, but it's about getting better at feeling. I, I think actually Christina had said it earlier, um, very much and absolutely checking both your bias and your privilege. Um, because uh, it works both on a, on a personal level and professional level because it, it, it's something that guides your work and your work on yourself. Um, do your research, um, like all, all the things that we're talking about too. Um, do your research on who, who you're treating, who are you looking at, how is it affecting them, what what's happening in their world view. Like, uh, absolutely check it. Regarding mental health, uh, I keep I say it's always important to be mindful of what you um your 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 play, your part in in um in someone else's uh, mental health experience or experience or vulnerability. When someone gives permission to someone, uh, tell someone something very personal, sometimes it's always important to understand, okay, this is a situation that either may be risk risky, um, it may be um, uh, life-threatening at times, unfortunately. And so it's always important to know where you stand. Um, in a situation that involves more clinical uh, or professional intervention, it is really important that you understand, okay, maybe this is, this is a situation where this person is explaining something to me that I am not skilled or I don't have to, not to say skilled but, or trained to address this concern. I need to know, I need to be able to address them to someone that, who does want to talk about the situation, this, especially when it comes to child abuse, neglect, um, domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, anything that's life-threatening in a sense, it's always important to know who to, who to refer if, in case. So that's something like for anyone, just to keep a sense, okay, you know what? If it's in my community, this is a clinic that they can go to. This is a person they can call. This is a hotline they have access to. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to address the situation myself because he's just my friend. Or it's okay. He can get used to this. And um, so it's never really... Uh, it's always important to understand where you stand in a situation um, and then also who you can go to if uh, the situation becomes too uh, pressuring or too life or death in a kind of that sense. And that is, what advice do you have for Latinos who are interested in having a career in mental health services? <laughs> I would say save your money. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> just... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> trying oh. to find student loans, trying to find grants, trying to find uh, CA positions, anything you can do to get it free. There is money out there, you just kind of have to find it. Um, look to the people who help, you know, look to the health professionals. Um, some, of those, some of those people, they have some answers that you just don't know. There's stuff you don't know exists out there, um, and so they can really help you out. You know, also, you know, don't be afraid to take a certain professor because you hear that they are very tough or that they, they're just, like, too, you know, stringent and stuff like that. So, you know, be open-minded. Um, you know, know your biases as well. You know, we all have them. We all have our biases. So know what your biases are and work on them. Thank you. And now, Christina. Are, are the statistics behind male Latinos in mental health are very low. Um, 
it, I was probably one, like two, one out of like the three male Latinos in my class, um, in my graduating class, uh, um, in my master's program. So um, it is okay to feel um, kind of like the outcast in mental health. Kind of, um, mental health structure here in this country has shaped this, uh, has been shaped around women, white women, um, to be that kind of bear of nurturing. Um, and so men kind of are seen as the stigma in, in, in um, becoming mental health professionals. So definitely embrace the fact that um, in the mental health field, a lot of youth, a lot of families, a lot of individuals respect um, male, men, especially men and who identify as Latino or black and have that understanding of what many are going through. Um, and definitely um, being able to take this as a learning experience. Um, what you're going to learn in, in, in academic program is based off of what you are going to find in the textbook. If so, many are the learning, uh, many are teachings, like I said before, from more Eurocentric or Americanized concepts of mental health. I had to do my own research about um, understanding machismo, understanding um, colorism, understanding different aspects that impact the Latino community on a mental health perspective. And that's what a lot of um, kind of like, that's your education and curriculum is your playground. So take it as it comes and don't be afraid to just like research whatever is out there about something that you're not getting in the classroom setting. For me, I'm not, I don't have a, a career in, in mental health uh, service, but working with that department, working with individuals within that field, uh, first and foremost, I want to say thank you. Um, I think the, the work you do um, is such a selfless, selfless act to want to put yourself in a position to help uh, people through their trauma, through, through things that they're going on every day in life um, and, and make understanding of that. Um, and I see how hard the work is and sometimes um, it can go by without the gratitude um, from your peers or from others that, that it should um, in, entail. And, and I think in our community, right, it's not a role or profession that you hear most often advocated for. Right? Usually in our field, in our communities, you're hearing of the sports and the entertainment and, and some of those things. So for, for, for those individuals to choose that path, I think is um, really empowering of our community. Um, it will continue to drive the conversation. Um, I think, uh, or George made a great point that, um, you know, for us to create these spaces, we're going to have to have these experts um, in, this, in this field. So, um, again, thank you for, 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 for doing that, uh, for, for creating those spaces and supporting the, uh, the brothers there. Um, and then ultimately, that, that, that it's a game of growth. Um, I think that's just uh, really what life is about, continuing to evolve. Um, and for us as a generation to try to really kill the stigma that seeking mental health support um, is something that, right, quote-unquote crazy people do. Uh, I guess my advice would be um, don't, don't be afraid to make mistakes mm -hmm. uh, because especially specifically more in grad school, that, that is prime time for you to make mistakes um, because one of the biggest things that you're going to learn is that you're, you're not going to learn everything in a book and you're not going to learn everything in a class. So being, being able to make those mistakes, both on a professional level and on a social level, um, it, is huge for you. Because as much, of, as much of it as it's an education piece, it's also a big, big, big time for you to uh, uh, self-introspect uh, and um, really think about what is it that you want to get out of your career. Because you're, you're going to come into confrontations with things that you're not comfortable with, and this is the prime time for you to get comfortable with them, or at least get comfortable knowing that you're not comfortable with them. So you know who you are, you know what you like, you know what you don't like, but don't be afraid to steer away from them. Um, one of the biggest things that uh, one of my professors said is that if you already know kind of where you want your career to go, let's say you want to go individual therapy, don't be afraid to go um, somewhere where they do group therapy. 
I want to work in some, I want to work private practice. Don't be afraid to go to a hospital. Like go, go and at least look at it, but don't knock it out just because you, you don't feel like that's where I want my career to lead. So don't, don't be afraid. Like, like Christina said, that, that time is prime time for it to be your playground and explore and take every challenge, um, do everything that you don't think you'll be able to do once you're out of here. Cause because <laughs> as we all know and best believe, like once once you're on your path, you're on your path. Like there's no steering away from it. That's because those bills need to get paid eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Okay, so my, uh, I don't have advice because I'm, I'm not a mental health professional, but I have a plea. I have a plea to you guys here and to anybody who's thinking about a career. Um, one of the things that we really have to address I think the root of everything that we have to address is the taboo of Latinos speaking out, speaking up for mental health, talking about it, and actually seeking help individually. Um, so if anything that you guys could do, and, and we'll talk offline about other options, but I really, 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 really want you guys to be more vocal on social media, on any platform that you have where you have the attention of anybody, is to start addressing those taboos. I think that's the root cause of a lot of our, our, our issues within the health, mental health space. And I think that talking about that first and foremost would actually alleviate some of the, uh, the roadblocks that people have to actually getting help. And, and just real quick for everyone, um, what, why, is it, why is it taboo for, for Latinos to speak about mental health or even ask for assistance? Um, if I could, oh, sorry, Dan. No, 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 I just wanted to piggyback up a little bit of what uh, George was saying earlier, and I think it ties to what George was saying now, and I think it ties to that question there. Um, to be quite honest, I think I think in my perspective is oftentimes our story is told of um, suffering and survival. Um, I think that's where it comes from. So when when we hear about the immigrant story, when we hear about those that um, come through the country to arduous process, right, crossing the borders. Um, coming in Yolas um, from the Caribbean islands, um, any way that, that, that our community can share the story more often than not, it starts with this idea of suffering. And through this experience, now we can um, survive, right? Through, through this journey of being in this great nation that we can call America and, and all, all, this, all the things that, that, that it brings, it, it stays there. So when that is your story, I think it's hard to look at the other side of the fence and expect the grass to be greener um, or hope for the grass to be greener. Um, I think that for, for, for a lot of us, um, and I was talking to my parents about that like two weekends ago, it was, you know, my mom is only 53, 54, and she talks about it like the life is over. Like, you know, I got my degree. I, I did all of this and that's that. And I'm like, you know, mom, on average, you have about another 20, 25 years to go. Um, we got to keep, talking about now moving to that next step which is thriving um and i think that when we take that next leap as a as a community of, of latino men then we can really start talking about uh, these taboos disappearing because it's no longer attached to our story now thriving and seeking help and seeking um relationships and brotherhood and all these other things are part of that experience um and this mm -hmm. journey thank you and daniel um, so I think there's so many answers to, to that question, um, but I, I would like to start off, well, and I guess this is the only point I'll make because we can talk about this for hours, but I think there is just such an ugly history with psychology. You know, some of these early experiments that were just really awful to a lot of people. And so another layer of it would be just kind of like, because we're so far behind, you know, when uh, you know, I hear like all these old cuentos about una persona que tenía el demonio adentro and they did like an exorcism and I'm listening, I'm like, no, that sounds like schizophrenia. It sounds like that person has schizophrenia. They did an exorcism and it didn't work, you know, so they, they hauled them off to, to the hospital and, you know, they mistreated them. So that's what they have, you know, as they have this, this image of very poor mistreatment from like the 1950s. You know, they have movies like One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, that was like their first time maybe viewing um, mental health and they saw how they were treating the people there. And so for someone to say like, oh, I'm going to therapy, you know, they get images like that in their mind. Thank you. And Javier? 
Um, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with Daniel that it's not it's not just one thing. Um, because just as Daniel had said, um, general mistrust in the system that that that's clearly a, a generational thing and uh, a community and resource thing, right? But to to me, when I think of like why why is it that um, the Latinx community isn't very like they they don't kind of look out for these resources is my mind goes straight to conditioning uh, and stereotypically we're kind of conditioned to adhere to these various very stereotypical like gender roles um, that's why we have uh, the term machismo that's why we have the term marianismo right stereotypically women are supposed to be kind of submissive and stereotypically the males are supposed to be more dominant um, kind of to uh, I think it was George that that we're supposed to be, the males are supposed to be that person to kind of just take it off, to suck it up and just, you know, keep that inside you. And um, where the women in the Latinx culture is like, well, we don't talk about that. Let, you know, like if, if we finally address it and if we put a label to it, we're mentioning both the family history and things that like um, kind of breaking those genders, right? Like, well, my husband can't take it. He's not a man. Or, oh, I said something about it, so I'm not um, complying with my womanly duties, you know? So that, that's kind of my take on it. Thank you. And Christina? Yeah, gender, um, like I mentioned before, aside from gender, is also really the, this is like the aftermath, the long-term aftermath of colonization and Americanization is basically what we see in gender concept and also the sense of, um, of really taking accountability for one's um, behaviors and one's feelings. Um, I, it kind of, it was, as everyone was mentioning it, it kind of uh, threw a flashback. So I, I, I did, um, I worked a lot with youth in juvenile detention centers and all the boys that would come in, they always like that tough exterior. Oh, I had, I had, young young boys from stealing a couple hundred dollars from the store to um being caught in attended in, in attempted murder charges or murder charges and it's like it's funny because when they would go to jail it was like that sense of gratification like i am tough where that kind of gender role plays um and many of the women that i worked with in jails would have that victim sense, that gender role, accomplishing that gender role sense. Um, but when you talk to really dig into their emotions, uh, you don't really get to go that far because it's very short term. They literally start to break open. They start to start crying. They start to like, the reason why they're in jail is because their father is deported or their father is in a gang and they're arrested. So they're kind of following in that footsteps. So a lot of these um, behaviors, aside from gender roles uh, in the Latino community, um, this, this family dynamics, the social structure, the, what, the expectations for kind of being the first generation versus the immigrant family is that kind of sense like my, uh, I am, I'm having to assimilate to a culture while my mom, like my parents are trying to instill a culture um, is very pressuring, especially in this kind of generation. So like it, it's basically for, uh, in, in the, in the sense of um, Latino youth, it's very uh, almost in a sense like a ticking time bomb where a lot of this, uh, a lot of these issues and factors kind of like are mixed in so quickly that you just have, an ongoing explode, explosion of emotions and trauma. With that said, that is all the time that we have. Thank you everyone for joining us. Forever at home, make sure you like the video, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and listen into our podcast platforms from Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Music. Also comment below and share your mental health tips, resources, and helpful links. Then follow us on all our social media outlets at Latin underscore entertainment. That is Latin underscore entertainment. Or join the Support Latina Business Facebook group and check out our Instagram lives every Tuesday and Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time 
and 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. See you next week as we discuss about gardening. All here on Conversamos. Yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. Music's helping me transform. I run the